Our cat Mina is funny cat. We uh, continuously, constantly, consistently take care of her, and yet she fails to recognize our care for her sometimes. Right? Every uh, night at food time, we feed her, and yet every night she wonders, will they feed me tonight? When we try to put tick medicine on her, she thinks we're trying to poison her. And more recently, we've tried to uh, usher her into the room that has AC to get away from the heat, but she refuses and stays in the hottest parts of the house. And we can tell she's uncomfortable. If she would just see that we are trying to care for her, she would find rest in the comfort of the AC. And isn't this how we sometimes are with God? Though God cares for us, we don't recognize his care for us. So we trust in ourselves, we trust in our own voice, but we don't trust the shepherding voice of our God who cares for us, who loves us, who's trying to push us towards him. Well, Psalm 95 invites us to orient our lives in right relationship to God. This text shows us that God is worthy to be worshipped. It also shows us that if we harden our hearts towards him, we will miss his rest. His rest is good. This is what our heart longs for. So let us not fail to enter his rest. The message for today is this. Respond in faith to God's revelation of himself so that you may enter his rest. Let me say that again. Respond in faith to God's revelation of himself so that today you may enter his rest. The first uh, point that we see in our text is from verses 1 to 7. It boils down to this. Praise God. Praise God. We read, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This is what we do when we gather week by week. We enter into worship. In fact, we enter in with a global body of believers to give God praise. This psalm tells us the kind of attitude that we ought to have as we enter into praise. But if we're honest, right, on a muggy day like today, where it's raining and it's dark, it can be hard to enter into praise with joy and with thanksgiving. Right? We've all had days where it's difficult to enter into praise in this way. Maybe it would help us to consider why do we worship? What is worship? What is praise? Why do we praise? Well, we might push the question even a little bit further. What makes God worthy of our worship? Right? I mean, this question seems obvious, right? It might even seem like a foolish question. Why would we ask that? Of course God is worthy of worship. If anyone's worthy of worship, it is God. But what is it that makes him worthy of worship? Do we ask this question? Well, first, let us consider what is the nature of praise? 
I love this quote from C.S. Lewis and his reflections on the psalm, on the psalms, sorry. I think I might have even quoted it before. I think Stephen has quoted it. So I'm sorry if it sounds repetitive, but I want us to understand praise. So C.S. Lewis says this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Right? When we have something that we so enjoy, don't we have to tell somebody about it? Right? That's what C.S. Lewis means. So praise is the natural outgrowth of enjoyment. So when we struggle to praise God, we need to ask ourselves, what might be robbing ourselves of the enjoyment that is in him? Right? We, one issue here as we think about this, this topic, as, as praise is enjoyment, is you might say, well, people enjoy different things, right? So is praiseworthiness just a matter of opinion? Some people praise what other people despise. So is God really worthy to be praised? Well, here's the thing. We don't always enjoy the right things, right? And here's why praise is not a matter of opinion, right? Everybody agrees that we ought to praise what we think to be good. That's what it comes down to, right? And we have different opinions about what is good, but what is really good is God alone. That's what scripture tells us. That all the good things that we enjoy in life have their ultimate source in God. So praiseworthiness is not a matter of opinion in the ultimate sense. God is the only one worthy of our praise because he is the only source of good. So we have to ask ourselves, when we read this psalm, when we're invited to give uh, praise to God with joy and thanksgiving, why don't we enjoy God as we ought? The problem is not with God. The problem is with our hearts. That would blind us to his goodness. Fortunately for us, we see in this psalm and throughout scripture, reasons that, that ground our hope in God, that tell us of his goodness. So as we continue, right, verse 1 and 2 tell us uh, they're this invitation to praise God. Verses 3 to 5 give us a, ground, a grounding in God's goodness revealed in creation. We read, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. God is a great God who reigns above creation. Right? God is greater than all of the things of this earth. If you could have it all, it would be nothing compared to God. The entire universe, forget the world, it's already unrealistic enough for us to think if we could have the world, but if you could have the universe that is 
nothing compared to the goodness of God. Right? And we, we, see, we see it here, right? All of the things of earth are his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. We think back to God when he created. He said, it is good. Goodness flowed directly from God. And God's not just the first source of goodness. He is the continual source of goodness. And so when we think of the things of this world, think of the things that you so cherish, that you so love, don't stop at giving praise to that thing. Look beyond the thing and see how it reveals God's goodness. To illustrate, right, if somebody were to give you a cake that you love, right, your favorite cake, maybe you don't like cake, right, your favorite food, do you just take the food, turn around, turn your back to the person that just gave it to you, and just praise the food. Oh, this food is so delicious. I love it. But then don't turn to the person who made it and recognize how it reflects their skill in making what they just made for you. Right? It is a reflection of their skill as a baker, as a cook. So let us not stop at the thing itself. Let us look beyond the good things, the good gifts that the Lord has given. Let us recognize his goodness, how it's revealed in these things. And we don't stop there, right? We don't stop at considering the things of this world. No, God's goodness has been revealed in creation. That's true. But it has also been revealed in specific ways, right? Let us consider verses 6 and 7. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. God didn't just make the world, he made us. And we can learn a lot about observing creation But this gives us only a general knowledge. God actually reveals specific things about himself. And we long to know God personally, right? We don't just long to have a general knowledge about God. This would be sufficient if God were, you know, the one who sets the parameters for the universe, but then he's hands off from there. Maybe then we'd say, yeah, it would be enough just to know general things about God. But that's not how God is, right? This is how some people view God. They see him as the one who sets the parameters, the one who sets the boundaries. And in this view, God is more like a fence maker than a shepherd, right? But we know from scripture that God is more than a fence maker. He is a shepherd. He is a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. He loves his sheep. And so like a good shepherd, he is with his sheep. We need to know that. We need to know that we have a God who is with his sheep. So God reveals himself in specific ways to us. We ought to respond in specific ways as well. You see, the sheep of his pasture listen to his voice. This language of God as shepherd is found throughout scripture. One of the places uh, we see it is in John chapter 10, where Jesus teaches 
He says he is the good shepherd and that his sheep recognize his voice. So what is our task, brothers and sisters? We need to learn to recognize the voice of the Lord. We need to learn to recognize the voice of the Lord. Now, this is challenging when we are in a world where there are so many voices, right? Voices, this actually uniquely is challenging in our day where the voices are nonstop. In the past, we didn't have internet. We didn't have voices coming in every direction all the time, nonstop. A million voices all in your pocket, right? On your phone, there are voices calling to you, right? I don't mean voice calls, but that could be the case as well, right? There's voices from every direction. How do we hear God's voice? This is challenging to some. You might think, you might have had this thought, sitting and trying to listen for God and hearing silence, thinking, God, where are you? Where is your voice? I don't hear your voice. Are you shepherding me? Well, let us consider this. Hearing the voice of the Lord means to perceive an expression out of his mind, right? That's true of any hearing, right? You hear my voice now. You're perceiving the expressions that flow from my thoughts. That's what it means to hear God's voice. The Lord spoke creation into being. And so when we observe creation, we hear the echoes of God's voice. They point us to him. Creation cries out, glory to God. We gain some measure of God's mind by observing creation, but it falls short when we compare it to what we receive in his word. God's word is not just uh, hearing the echo of God's voice. No, he speaks directly to us. If we want to hear God's voice, then we ought to have a high view of Scripture. We ought to learn Scripture. We ought to sit with it. If you want to learn to recognize the voice of God, spend time in His Word. And I don't mean just reading God's Word. right? I mean sitting with it, steeping in the truths, meditating on it so that the truth goes from our head to our heart. Right? That's what one of my teachers in high school said. The longest journey you'll ever take is from your head to your heart. You know how we get there? We steep in the truths. We meditate. We, we sit there with the truths of God until they steep into our hearts. Now, brothers and sisters, let us not stop there because the mind of God is made clearest in his Son. John tells us that Christ is the word of God made flesh. And so if we want to learn to hear the voice of God, then we need to learn how to see Jesus. We need to learn how to follow Jesus. Learn to see the world and learn to read the word in light of Christ. Light, in light of the revelation that God has given us of Christ. That's why a Christian reading of Scripture is always Christ-centered. Because we recognize that every promise and every passage, they all point to Christ. They have their fulfillment in Christ. And so we need to have a Christ-centered view of Scripture. 
We also need to have a Christ-centered view of the world, right? We read that uh, by him and to him and through him are all things. Do you recognize that the world was spoken into being through God's word? Do you recognize that he reigns above it all and that Christ is center, center to what God is doing here? And there's no area of our lives in which Christ does not speak. How is Christ speaking to you today? Do you hear him? Now, if we do hear the voice of the Lord today, the rest of this psalm is a warning for us. The entire warning is summed up in verses 7 and 8. We read, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This begs the question, what does the psalmist mean by hardening your heart? Because if this means what the psalmist says it means, I don't want to have a hard heart. Right? Well, let us consider, he says, uh, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So what happened at Meribah and Massa? As God, uh, sorry, after God led Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, they began to wander through the wilderness. It was not long before they became thirsty. They're wandering in the desert. And so they confront Moses and they say, why, do you bring, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Right? They're not really questioning Moses. They are questioning God. God, why did you bring us here to kill us of thirst? Though Israel had seen God's miraculous provision in bringing them out of Egypt, they still doubted him. So at uh, Meribah and Massa, the, fa- the fathers of Israel Put God to the test. Their concern for water was valid, right? Don't we all need water? We all know what it's like to be thirsty. In fact, I'm going to take a quick drink because I can feel that now, right? We know what it's like to feel thirsty. But their response of questioning God demonstrates that they did not trust him. That's what it comes down to. Now, If you're like me, you might look back at the Israelites and think, what were they thinking? Right? How could they not trust God? They saw God work in miraculous ways, in ways that nobody had ever seen God work. How did they doubt him? Right? And maybe you've had a thought similar uh, to this one. I, I know I have. In seasons of doubt, I've thought, you know, if I had only been there, if I had seen God work like he worked in the Exodus, there's no way I would doubt him, right? I would trust God then. How often are we like Thomas, right? Thomas, who was, sometimes people call him the doubting disciple. He, he wanted to touch Jesus's hands before he would believe that he really rose from the dead, right? We, we can really, yeah, be like Thomas. But if you've ever been like that, right? If you've ever had that thought, then this passage actually confronts us, right? Because we see that Israel did see God work that way, but they did not trust him. What makes us different from Israel, right? We can be quick to judge Israel, 
But let's examine ourselves. Have you ever been gripped by the realization of the truth in Scripture? Have you ever beheld God's glory and goodness? Have you seen God work in your life? Have you seen him answer prayers? Have you seen God's providence? Have you seen it? Christian, in your own life, as you've been brought from death to life, have you seen God's hand at work in conquering sin, right? In the ongoing process of sanctification, do you see God work? Do you see that he is good? Amen. He is good. And yet, we see God's goodness in creation. We see his goodness in shepherding us, and yet, we still doubt. We have days where it's hard to, to, to trust. When do you doubt the Lord? Right? This is a question for us all to be asking ourselves as we read this te- text. When do I tend to doubt the Lord? Maybe some of us can relate to the Israelites. You look back at your life, and you wonder, Lord, why did you bring me here to die in the desert. Well, it's amazing how quickly we can forget God's past faithfulness in the midst of present uncertainties, isn't it? I mean, it almost doesn't matter what has happened in the past. We are just prone to forget. But I hold to this promise that we have in Scripture Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not offer his son to leave us to die in the desert. That is something that gives us great hope. No matter the circumstances, we can trust God because he remains faithful. Now, let us consider just a little bit further. I know that we are all prone to doubt. Our eyes do not see God in his full glory, and so we have times where we we wonder if God sees, we wonder if God cares, we have our doubts, whatever those doubts are. What I don't want to do is I don't want to cause you concern about the measure of your faith, right? If we're not careful, we can think, I need bigger faith. It's not about having bigger faith. It's about faith in the right thing. Let me illustrate. I think I've given this illustration before, but if I see a chair and I say that I trust that chair, right? I I might believe that chair will hold me up, but faith is to sit in the chair, It doesn't matter how great my faith is. If I've sat in the chair, I have sat in the chair. So our question when uh, approaching this, right, we, we do not want to harden our hearts. What is the difference between a hard heart and having little faith? Right, well, a hard heart looks to God. It starts with doubt. It starts with little doubts, but it might grow to bigger doubts, and then it might grow to saying, God, I don't believe you're good. That is a hard heart. That is what we must avoid. The difference here is little faith says, God, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Have you 
prayed that prayer? While we might not grasp the full riches of God's goodness now, let us all go in a Godward direction. That's what it means to to have faith. And so whether you have faith like a mustard seed or you have faith like a mountain, the call for us all today is the same. If you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Respond in faith to his voice. So now, verses 10 and 11 show us the result if we do not respond in faith. We read, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These verses are clear enough, right? The result of hardening our heart towards God is that we will not enter his rest. God's rest is to be desired above all things. Let us not harden our hearts. Let us learn his ways. Let us know his ways. The author of Hebrews quotes this passage um, from, from Psalm 95 to encourage the church towards steadfastness in Christ. So I want to read from, this is from Hebrews chapter 3. I think it starts in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's a warning here for us all. The stakes for holding this confidence is high. It's a matter of having a share in Christ. It is a matter of entering into God's rest. Now, if sin were not deceitful, it wouldn't be that big of a problem, right? We could say one time, I could say here one time, God is greater, right? Christ is greater. Do not be deceived, He's better than anything else in life. God's rest is better than every empty promise of sin and case is closed, problem solved, right? Now, if you've lived long enough, which I think we all have, we know that that's not the case. We don't just tell ourselves one time, nope, this is better than that. I'm never going to do this again, right? I wish it was that easy, but it's not. And so, brothers and sisters, let us uh, hear what the author of Hebrews is telling We must continue to exhort one another time and time again. Do not be deceived. Do not be enticed by the lies of the devil. No, look to Christ. Look to his goodness and see that he is better. That's the thing. We don't just, uh, it's not enough just to look away from the sin. Look to God and see that he is better. Take heed so that sin would not rob you of your faith. You see, a hard heart and sin have the same root, don't they? What is the root of a hard heart? What is the root of sin? It's unbelief. 
It's unbelief. And so our task together is to battle unbelief. That's what we do week in and week out as we're exhorted from the scriptures, as we sing the truths uh, of, of scriptures in, in the form of song, right? But we also need to exhort one another, not just on Sundays. No, he says, if today is called today, not if today is called Sunday, right? Throughout the week, are we building each other up? Are we building each other up towards Christ's likeness? Are we building each other up? When we wrestle with unbelief, where do we go? I mean, the, the instinct in our individualistic culture is, okay, I know the answers are here in scripture. I'm going to come here alone. I'm going to spend time alone. But brothers and sisters, God has put us here to sharpen each other. And so do not feel that you need to battle unbelief in isolation. No, let us bring our unbelief to the light of God's word and to the light of this community that he's given us. And let us battle unbelief together. Because we see that God is good. That he is worthy to be praised. That there is great joy to be found in him. So let us strive to live in light of the truth that God has revealed to us. Yes, that means to trust in Christ for our righteousness. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the foundation. But sometimes we stop there. And we don't look at the whole counsel of God's word. We don't look at everything that he tells us. Do we recognize that it is for our good that he has given us his word? That we are to delight in his word? Do we recognize that? Because if we don't recognize that, we're going to miss the worship that is to be had, the enjoyment that is to be had in him. And so, brothers and sisters, we build our lives on this foundation. Right? This, this is not the, the roof. This is the foundation. Trust in Christ and learn to hear his voice. And let us come day by day, and remind ourselves of the truths because it is good. It is good to be in God's rest. So now as we conclude, let us remember God is worthy to be praised because God is good. God is good in his essence. He is worthy to be praised. He's made his goodness known to us in creation, and he makes his goodness known to us in his word. And most notably, he makes his goodness known to us in the cross, because in the cross, God shows that he is totally righteous, totally just, and totally merciful. God has made his goodness known. Scripture tells us that those who are in Christ will one day rest completely in his goodness. We will see him fully for who he is in all of his glory, in all of his goodness, forever and ever. Amen. So there's nothing greater to be desired than this. It is the best thing for eternity. So brothers and sisters, take care. Do not Harden your hearts. Let us not harden our hearts, but let us respond in faith to God's revelation of himself so that one day we may enter his rest.